Welcome to The Good Life with Dr. Danny, a program of Danny Yamashiro Ministries and Formation Institute. Divisions of Jesus Christ is calling you. To contact Dr. Danny and learn more about the ministry, visit drdanny.live. Now let's join Dr. Danny and experience The Good Life today. Danny Yamashiro here. Welcome to The Good Life, encouraging you with inspirational stories to share with family and friends through perspectives of hope in Jesus Christ. Why would newlyweds, just four months after marriage, radically and unexpectedly move to Edinburgh, Scotland, to help plant two new churches? How did God lead them to leave those two thriving churches to start a church in between both Harvard and MIT? This is the story of Adam and Hope Mabry. Dr. Adam Mabry joins us to speak of his journey of faith, God's call, his leadership, and how he learned to hold truth in tension. We pause here at the beginning of our show to remind you the reason we have the Good Life program. Well, dear friend, it's to, to, to share how the love of Jesus Christ makes a difference in the lives of people. I'm talking about the love of Jesus so strong that he died on the cross for your sins and mine. He was buried, yes, but three days later he rose again from the grave and he offers God's hope to you. Will you turn to Jesus? Will you open your heart to Christ? Turn from your way to God's way. That's called repentance. Receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord. That's our prayer today. And if you already know the Lord, I believe you're going to be encouraged by Dr. Adam Mabry. He is the lead pastor of Aletheia Church in Boston. He earned his Master of Arts degree from Reformed Theological Seminary, a Master of Theology and Doctor of Ministry degree degrees from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He's currently a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Aberdeen. He is the author of The Art of Rest, Faith to Hit Pause in a World that Never Stops, Stop Taking Sides, How Truth Intention Saves Us from Anxiety and Outrage, and When God Seems Gone, Finding Hope When Nothing Makes Sense. He's married to Hope. They have four children, Alana, Nora, Cole, and Wyatt. Adam, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. It is a privilege to be here. Appreciate you joining us. Where did you grow up, Adam? I, I grew up in Panama City Beach, Florida. Um, Panama City is a, a town that culturally is probably more like South Alabama with a beach. Um, and uh, there are kind of two halves to it. And so I grew up on the beach side. When you mention two halves, say about, what do you mean by two halves? Well, there's, uh, when you say you live in Panama City, the next question someone from that town will ask you is, do you live in town or do you live on the beach? And so there's a, there's a bridge that separates those two parts of town, and, uh, and we lived on the beach side. My father was a uh, developer in town, and so he and my mom and my grandfather actually started a business that uh, developed you know, subdivisions and uh, other uh, small commercial properties, uh, built a lot of stuff in Panama City, actually. Who would you say influenced you most in your growing up years? Oh, um, that would be difficult to say. Uh, my, I mean, I was raised mostly by my, my mom. My, my parents' uh, marriage 
uh, ended when I was nine. And so I, I lived with my mom. And so she kind of lived that single mom life and, and was working really hard and, and brought me into her, uh, her working life. And um, my mom taught me to be tough. And uh, my mom taught me to uh, really how to, how to grow up. Um, probably from my father, I, I get this entrepreneurial bent because my dad is, a, uh, is an entrepreneur. And um, same thing with my grandfather. My grandfather uh, is an entrepreneur, like of entrepreneurs. So not only does he start businesses, but he also uh, took great delight in helping other people start their own, which is how my dad uh, got, got started as well. And so I, I can think of really helpful influences that they've all had. And, um, and even through the, you know, kind of the Rocky formation, um, they were all very uh, consistent at showing their love for me and my sister. You're, are you, were you the older one or the younger one? I, I'm the younger one. My sister is six years older. Than six me. years older. Now, you talk about this entrepreneurial bent. It sounds like a, a very capital B, capital E, capital N, T. And then your grandfather, an entrepreneur of entrepreneurs, what do you feel God was doing as you look back in reflection, having you grow up in that kind of context? When my grandfather passed away a few years ago, I actually gave a lot of thought to that question, uh, and I had the I had the honor of you know eulogizing him. And uh, one of the things I did, and I didn't plan to do it, but the church was so full of people um, because he was well known in, in our in our town. I just asked the question like, hey, if you've if my grandfather helped you get started in some way, uh, would you just stand up? And an enormous amount of people, far more than I ever thought, stood up, and um, and so. To whatever degree I have this kind of twitchy, unstoppable desire to do the next thing or to start something new, I, I think I attribute that in the natural to my my grandfather, who uh, just loved to start new things and loved to uh, get people involved in business and, and then help them flourish. Your faith, growing up in that environment, how did your your faith in Christ grow? How did you become a... A believer. Well, I grew up in a time in the South where you know pretty much everyone was a Christian. So if you had a face, you went to church. Um, uh, and and we were we were no different. My father didn't join us much, but my mom, you know, took us to a uh, like a neighborhood United Methodist Church. And um, and so church things were sort of part of my social uh, development. Um, and my mom faithfully, when she when we were little, she would pray the same prayer to me, with me, uh, by my bedside before, you know, night. So there's always the seed of faith, uh, though, uh, it never really blossomed for my, my parents. They, they were not serving Jesus. In fact, our family was, uh, went through some pretty rocky stuff. Um, but, uh, as I was coming of age, you know, you know, you began to become self-aware and you're like, oh, this is the kind of family that I live in. And I began to realize, oh, my family has some problems. And I, I kind of, wanted to distance myself from them. And so I had a friend invite me to camp. Uh, and I was like, I just said, yes, I was going. And uh, I didn't know what kind of camp it was. It could have been an Al-Qaeda training camp. I would have gone. I just, it, I just wanted to take a step away. How old were you? At I was, uh, I was 12. And, um, and uh, it was a, it was a Christian summer camp. And there uh, I, I just had a blast. And, uh, and it was the first time I'd heard about Jesus. And, uh, and the camp preacher, I do not remember his name, um, at, I mean, he, he preached a very simple gospel and he, we didn't have like a big emotional response. He just said, Hey, tonight on the way back to your, you know, your room, uh, if you need to do business with God, do it. And as like a 
12 year old, that made sense to me. And, um, and so that was really the, the moment where I can point to and say, okay, that, that was when I personally trusted Jesus as Lord and savior myself. And, uh, I came back home and I tried to tell my parents about him and maybe, maybe not to the most, uh, gentle effect. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was the moment. So 12 years, 12 years old, you're growing. At what point did you meet hope? Yeah. Not long after that. Uh, uh, I met hope when I was in the 10th grade and she was in the 11th grade. Uh, we had a mutual friend and, um, uh, this friend, uh, her father, uh, was a Presbyterian church elder and a, and a lawyer. And he, and so as a successful man, he built this big house with a pool and uh, a basketball court and like big music room and big TV so that his daughter's friends could come and, and, you know, he could, he could uh, provide a safe, godly influence in the lives of lots and lots of young people. And I was one of them. And uh, it was at his house that I met my wife. I heard from their music room, someone playing Rachmaninoff. So the other piece is, uh, I was a complete music nerd, um, and not not modern music, like classical music. Uh, uh, I, you know, uh, ended up later. I would get a degree in voice, and my wife in piano. But I, I heard someone playing music that I, I was pretty sure no one that I knew in in town could do that. And I I walked in, and that that was my wife. She or not my wife at the time. Um, yeah, but I was kind of mesmerized. And uh, she was playing. Uh huh. Uh huh. And um, mm hmm. And she'd. Uh, She's, she's a very accomplished pianist and, uh, and I was just kind of wowed. And in the next semester we were in the same math class and she, you know, sat at the front and got A's. I sat in the middle and got C's cause I don't like math and I was kind of paying attention to her. Um, and, uh, and eventually we began dating and just early on, we both kind of had a sense that like, this was, this, this person is who I'm supposed to marry. Now that's a, that's a very unusual story. You know, met in high school, we ended up getting married at 20, um, and uh, I wouldn't change it, and I'm super grateful. Uh, but yeah, high school sweethearts. So you got married. How did God lead you to Scotland? Yeah. Shortly after, what, four months after marriage. Yeah. Um, so I graduated at 17, and uh, I ended up compressing my bachelor's degree into two years because I was really motivated to marry my wife. Um, and that is also where I got involved with a campus ministry called uh, Every Nation Campus Ministries. And, um, uh, you know, at the time, I, I was really hungry for someone to disciple me. I had been through a lot of classes. I knew, like, my head was full of knowledge, but I was um, unable to get over my bad habits and my hangups and, and uh, even some personal pain. And I heard about this campus ministry at Florida State University. I ended up being a part of it and uh, had a really, really transformational experience there. And uh, that campus ministry was attached to a local church uh, of the same name, Every Nation, Tallahassee. Uh, it, this was the first time I'd walked into a room that had, you know, multiple uh, ethnicities in it, singing in different uh, styles than I was used to. And uh, I, I was just mesmerized by the whole thing and uh, became uh, discipled there. And so after we got married, uh, I graduated in December and then we were married a week later. Uh, that's the church we started attending. We were serving that campus ministry just to, you know, as as volunteers. And we were invited to go to this conference. And uh, at the conference, a guy got up and he gave an announcement. It wasn't even a sermon. He gave an announcement about this church plant that was going to happen in Edinburgh, Scotland. And uh, I couldn't have found Edinburgh on a map uh, if you paid me at that time. 
But I heard the Holy Spirit say, stop what you're doing and go and do this. And I, I in no way wanted to do that. My, you know, I, uh, so I just kind of avoided it. But later that night when we got back to the hotel, my, my wife had pretty much the exact same experience. And so once we started to talk about it, we were like, oh, okay, this is, uh, this is the thing we probably should go do. And after investigating it and, and praying and running it by wise counsel, that's what we did. Running it by wise counsel, it certainly must have been startling to have that sense at such an early age that God is saying something to you that something you've never thought about before. Dear friend, is have you ever experienced anything like that? Or is the Lord nudging you or saying something to you even at this moment that you never thought would ever come to you in that way? Something that sounds outrageous? Well, certainly, Pastor Adam reminds us to seek godly counsel on that. But this is the beginning of a journey that led to Edinburgh, Scotland, planting churches, but also a time of preparation for what God was going to do and continues to do here in Boston. Dr. Adam Mabry is the lead pastor of Aletheia Church in Boston. You can find out more about him at Adam Mabry. Again, adammabry.org. When we come back, we'll hear more from him about the church, Aletheia Church. It's with Every Nation Ministries. He's been there for 13 years. There's a new location for the church as well. We're going to talk more and get into it even heart to heart. And heart to heart, dear friend, not only between the two of us, but hopefully with you. What is the Lord saying to you, dear friend? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Wandering the road of desperate life, aimlessly beneath the barren sky. This is Danny Yamashiro. Don Pick Benson wrote, When I was growing up, my dad was a farmer, not a Christian. He had little interest in faith having been told by his father that the Bible was a fairy tale. But then a local pastor took an interest in my dad, asking if he could help plow the fields on the weekend. That one act of service spoke louder than words ever could to my dad. By his actions, the pastor made my dad feel loved, and that did more than any preaching could have. He didn't need convincing about the theological correctness of the Bible. He needed to feel God's love for him. This pastor met that need in a practical way, and that's evangelism. For more inspiration on evangelism, go to drdanny.live. You're listening to The Good Life with Dr. Danny, a program of Danny Yamashiro Ministries and Formation Institute. Divisions of Jesus Christ is calling you. Now let's join Dr. Danny and experience The Good Life today. Dr. Adam Mabry is the lead pastor of Aletheia Church in Boston. It's a growing, diverse church, passionately committed to bringing the truth, grace, and the changing power of the gospel for the glory of God and the good of all people. Is the author of the book, Stop Taking Sides, How Truth Intention Saves Us from Anxiety and Outrage. So, 
Adam, you pastored Aletheia for over 13 years. You have a new location. Where is this? Yeah, so uh, currently our, our church has two locations. One is in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, just up the road from Brown. And uh, we recently moved our Cambridge location uh, actually just like 300 yards um, on the other side of Central Square uh, because we, we feel deeply called to this area uh, that we're in. Uh, and so it's at 85 Bishop Allen Drive. We uh, we actually entered into a really cool partnership with another church, um, St. Paul AME, um, to uh, do a, like a long-term lease of one of their spaces and renovate it and stuff. And um, and so that's uh, those renovations are ongoing. <laughs> uh, they're about halfway done, but we're uh, we're in and we're very glad to be there. Why do you believe God led you to the heart of Cambridge, between MIT and Harvard? Uh, so there's a short answer and a long answer. The short answer is because I think God's hilarious. Um, and the long answer is um, I, the place sort of matches my journey. Um, so when we lived in Edinburgh, I was, um, you know, when you're part of a church plant, job titles are just decorations, right? Because everybody's just there to uh, do whatever needs doing. Um, and so I was a campus minister. I was a worship leader. I, you know, taught some, uh, but I was the youngest guy on staff. And so I was not the senior pastor uh, or even any kind of pastor in these churches. Um, I was the worship leader on Sunday. That, that's how you would have seen me. And so um, I, but, but Edinburgh is kind of marked by this like deep cynicism and, and unbelief. And so at the time, the university students that I was ministering to, um, you know, I would go and give them my best arguments for Jesus and they would eat my lunch. And it really forced me to to develop like, okay, if I, I, I really have to be able to give a better answer for the hope uh, that lies within me. And so um, that's also when I started like seminary. Uh, it's when I started to devour anything <laughs> that had an apologetic bent. Um, Tim Keller's book, the reason for God, I mean, I think I read it twice on a train from Edinburgh to London. And so those, the engagement with, um, people who at least think of themselves as intellectual, uh, and in a place that, uh, has long since, um, said goodbye to its Christian heritage, uh, that that's just where I cut my teeth. And so we actually thought we would stay in the UK and maybe plant somewhere else. Um, but through some, uh, extant circumstances related to our visa, we were like, okay, that's not, God is clearly calling us back to America. And so it was literally this question, what, what place in America is old and, uh, unbelieving (laughs) and heady like Edinburgh and, and Boston was the city that, that came to mind. And so we took a trip here and we walked around and we just asked God, like, where do you want us to be? And as soon as we popped up off the red line uh, in Central Square, we were like, oh, yeah, this is where we're supposed to be. Um, and so we went through the normal preparation stuff and 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 planted uh, a couple of years later. And, you know, looking back, I think that that journey of, you know, having to contend with people who are, I mean, they're all smarter than me, like definitely, and it's not close. Um but I get their doubt, all their doubts, many of them, I have felt myself. And so, uh, and I've journeyed through them. And so because of that, I feel sometimes specially uh, equipped to help them uh, journey through them as well. You are weaving in these intellectual discussions. God prepared you in Edinburgh for such a time and place mm-hmm. as this. The social political climate that -hmm. we're living in today requires a a great deal of nuance. It's like weaving a very fine thread through the rhetorical discourses Mm -hmm. 
of our day, and you're in the the heart of these discussions, where many of these ideas get passed on mm -hmm. to universities worldwide. Your book, Stop Taking Sides, timely in polarizing times. What prompted you to write it? What prompted me to write it is actually a uh, an an exegetical revelation. <laughs> um, I realized that in order to be fruitful where I am, um, I can't live under the presupposition that God is always on my side. Um, so what I did in that book actually uh, wasn't to really, I wasn't talking too much about politics. I was, I was trying to show the reader how in the Bible there are really intentional tensions, uh, like the tension between God gives his people victory, but also suffering or the tension between, you know, God is sovereign and you're responsible and how the Bible gives us these tensions and often doesn't solve them to the degree that some, you know, some of us wish that God would. And the tension is the point. And that's what I was trying to show. And so preaching that way and learning to speak to people that way um, has been a uh, has been a journey that I think has helped me. Um, not never take sides. I, I don't advocate never taking sides because obviously there are some things that you must absolutely be willing to take a side on because the Bible is, you know, speaks with one one voice on it. But um, not everything is a hill on which to die, right? Um, the gospel, the the nature of God, the nature of Christ, these are hills on which I'll die. But like your pet eschatology versus mine, I'm probably not going to go into the Colosseum <laughs> over. And so uh, kind of learning how to distinguish those things and, um, and helping my friends to distinguish them too has been, has been a real, you know, tool, I think. Let's scratch a little further. What's an example of both and rather than either or? Truths? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, well, let's take the one about victory versus suffering. So I kind of live in, you know, the, the academic reformed world, but also very much in the global Pentecostal charismatic world. And so different, different worlds emphasize different parts of that, that tension. And so if you are more of the charismatic Pentecostal bent, you will probably more often hear, you know, the Deuteronomy 28, you know, if you obey my commands, blessed shall you be in the city and in the field and, and you're coming out and you're going in, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and the parts about the believer walking in victory are the parts that get preached most, um, but often skipped over are, you know, is the second two thirds of Deuteronomy 28, which is all the curses for disobedience. Um, and so, uh, and similarly, you could reverse that story, you know, in the, in the reformed world, but the, the Bible doesn't say you will never, uh, suffer yet. It also doesn't say you'll never walk in victory. And so, you know, a chief text on this is like Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is about a journey, the, the road of the righteous. And it begins, you know, God is I'm by still waters and, and green pastures and everything's awesome. And then all of a sudden we're in the valley of the shadow of death. But by the end of the Psalm, goodness and mercy have chased me down and I'm in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And I think that Psalm is actually a really good picture of the journey of a, of a believer where God wants to give us victory. Absolutely. And in the end, all believers will in fact walk in unimaginable levels of victory, but it is a victory through suffering. And the, the Bible does not teach that, you know, it, it will only be suffering. Um, nor does it teach that if you have enough faith, there will only be victory, which is, you know, of course, a, 
uh, a common thought amongst some Western churches. And so I wanted to demonstrate how, how actually holding that tension develops virtue of faithfulness um, and patience. And I think God is more interested in the virtue than uh, solving my you know, academic theological question. You take us down this path in the book. Where's the balance between being right about Jesus and following the way of Jesus? Yeah. Um, so I actually would modify the question. I, I don't really like the word balance um, because it feels static to me, like I'm standing on you know, a very small point and my arms are in the air and I'm kind of wobbling, um, trying to hold a balance. I think of it more like the tension on a piano string. Um, you know, a piano string is under thousands of pounds of pressure uh, to make a beautiful sound. And the pressure is the point. So the further, you know, the further you tighten one side, the further you have to tighten the other side to make sure that, you know, the string is in, is in right tuning. Similarly, in, in our, you know, walk with Christ, it is 100% by faith. Absolutely. Like we trust Jesus. And also he calls us to walk in the footsteps that he walked. Um, and those things are not mutually exclusive. They're correlative. And so the more I trust him, the more I will or should walk with him, and the more I'm rightly walking with him, the more I'm, I'm embodying my, my trust in him. And so you get this positive feedback loop, not of balance, but of increased tension of I'm trusting and I'm obeying Jesus maybe more than I ever have, and also trusting him. Um, and so I, I would say I, I change the metaphor in my mind from balance to tension, and it starts to make a lot more sense. As you speak about tension, Say a little bit more. We'll, we'll come back to this, this, this idea of paradox and mystery. Mm-hmm. Paradox and mystery in view of this increased tension, mm-hmm. not only what you talk about and write about, but tension that we should feel mm-hmm. and maybe already feel. Mm-hmm. And perhaps maybe somebody should feel more of that kind of tension. You're listening to Dr. Adam Mabry. You can find out more about him and his ministry at Aletheia Church, adammabry.org. When we come back, we'll talk about paradox and mystery. And in what way does prudence overhaul some of our political ideologies? That and more when we come back. In 2010, Adam and Hope Mabry planted Aletheia Church in Boston, fueled with a passion for God's truth and grace to permeate all areas of society, Aletheia began in their living room and has not ceased to grow and reach those who are once far from God. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The road of desperate life, beneath the barren sky. Jeremiah 33.3 says, Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and unsearchable things you do not know. The Good Life with Dr. Danny is a program that was born out of prayer. The Spirit of Christ guides us through prayer, empowers us through prayer, and provides for us through prayer. There are mighty things that the Lord is doing in the Northeast, across the United States, and around the world. Would you like to be a part of God's work through The Good Life with Dr. Danny? Visit drdanny.live. Dr. Danny invites you to join his prayer team. Each month, you will receive a letter updating you on some of the -the behind-the-scenes developments, prayer requests, along with a devotional that Dr. Danny writes to encourage you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Join the prayer team today and make an eternal difference in people's lives. 
visit drdanny.live. That's drdanny.live. You're listening to The Good Life with Dr. Danny, a program of Danny Yamashiro Ministries and Formation Institute. Divisions of Jesus Christ is calling you. Now let's join Dr. Danny and experience the good life today. Paradox and mystery, we're talking about that in view of Pastor Adam Mabry. Dr. Adam Mabry's book, Stop Taking Sides, He's he sounds like he's just standing in the middle, but he's standing on a great deal of tension. That's what he explains to us in the book and why that tension is so vital to our lives as believers. Find out more about him at adammabry.org. If you're tuning in right now, maybe you caught the tail end of the last segment. You know, you can get this program in its entirety. Just go to drdanny.live. Uh, or just go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any major platform. It's available for you there. Just go ahead and subscribe to this show. Adam, paradox and mystery. How does being uh, right about Jesus, as you've explained, this tension relate with paradox and mystery? Yeah, well, mystery is a biblical word, uh, right? So Paul talks about uh, the mystery hidden for ages uh, revealed in the gospel that even like the uh, the unseen world couldn't understand um, until the resurrection. And so uh, there's an unfolding mystery across the history of redemption that will, I suppose, only be complete when those seals are broken in the book of Revelation and God's, you know, the final act of his plan is, is fully executed. Um, and so that's when I think of mystery, uh, in a biblical sense, that's sort of, or at least in a New, New Testament sense, that's what uh, comes to mind. Paradox is a word that describes uh, two ideas that feel as though they should not go together, but do. Um, some people mean paradox to talk about like a, a logical contradiction, um, uh, but I'm not using that word in that way. Uh, the Bible never asks us to believe in logical contradictions. A logical contradiction would be like, you know, that a, uh, you know, a, a shape is both a circle and has corners, like that that's, you know, those are mutually exclusive. That can't possibly be true. Um, but a paradox is like, okay, God is one in essence, but three in persons. And these things are true, but boy, that that doesn't feel, uh, I, I don't, I can't grab onto anything in real life and know what that is like uh, fully. So uh, when I, when we think about paradoxes in the scripture, that's really what I mean by tensions. So uh, there are, there are vanishing points uh, past which we, we simply can't see. Um, and to, you know, to the work of great theology and the work of great, um, devotion, I think is to peer and to try and peer a little further, uh, not for the sake of knowledge itself, of course, but for the sake of knowing God and what, and what he's like. Um, so when we, you know, a a good example of this would be the tension between God's sovereignty and, and human responsibility that, you know, however you slice that, uh, unless you are a complete determinist or you don't believe God knows the future, neither of which I think are biblical, you know, however you slice that historically, God is in charge of things in an un- at a level that makes me uncomfortable, <laughs> and I don't understand how that can be true. And also, He's going to hold me accountable for my, my my choices. And and so the Bible teaches both these things. And you know, for centuries we've been trying to you know navigate how both of those things can be true. And people have proposed different systems. And you know, I have one that I think is 
uh, more convincing myself, but the point that I'm trying to make is there is an intentional tension in the Bible. God wrote it that way for a reason, and so instead of trying to constantly solve a math problem he didn't ask us to solve, maybe it would be more interesting and we would be more holy if we believed both of these and allowed the tension of trusting a God like that to develop character and virtue in us. So you're pressing in to a, a, a deeper experiential understanding, relationally speaking, with God. If we take a step back, why have we, why have others fallen into this place where we have become polarized and, and, and find a level of comfort in these silos and stay away from tension? Yeah, I mean, I think the short answer is because it's easier. Um, you know, the world is a complex place, and so the more simple answers that I can embrace to explain it, um, the easier my, my life might be, or at least that's, um, that's the temptation. Um, and it's not just a temptation. I mean, that's like neurologically, our brains are kind of difference-making machines, right? And, and so uh, uh, the idea of, you know, is this good for me or bad for me? Um, sh- should I say yes or no? There are lots of binary choices uh, that we do, of course, have to make. But in the real world, the more and more you look at it, uh, there, it there's a bit more texture and a bit more nuance to certain things. And trying to think about that requires the act of love for the person or the persons with whom you disagree. So it's much easier for me to make a strong, if you and I were to disagree over something, I don't know, take politics or something, it's much easier for me if I just make a straw man out of what you believe and burn it down rather than if I make a steel man of your very best arguments and uh, lovingly interact with them because love is hard, (laughs) because virtue is hard. And so when we don't engage in love, is simpler and feels safer to just embrace simple explanations for everything. On, on, on this political marker here, and I know the book is not a political book, but you do touch on a little bit, yeah. part. So Christless uh, conservatism and godless progressivism. Yes. In what way does prudence overhaul our political ideologies? Right, so we we think about you know kind of right and left on a you know a, a, a line, right, a, a left and right sort of spectrum, um, and so if you can imagine over that, you know, a a circle, <laughs> kind of invading part of that line, um, at, at at some points, uh, there is a kingdom way that that God has for us to do certain things, and when we when we embrace that kingdom way, it means we have to admit that certain parts of our political preferences are in fact wrong. And so a Christless conservatism that pretends it has no, uh, no duty to the poor and the least and the last and the lost uh, can only be that way as long as you ignore Jesus. <laughs> um, and a godless progressivism uh, that insists on personal freedom can only go in that direction if you ignore Christ's Sermon on the Mount and and his really serious moral injunctions against some of our preferred behaviors. And so uh, in order to actually, you know, live in a political party, but not be owned by that political party as a Christian, 
you have to know that and you have to lovingly say, be able to say sometimes the people that I don't want to vote for are sometimes right about things and I have something I could probably learn from them and the people that I do want to vote for often are wrong about some things that I, I have to I have to be able to admit lest I become captured by you know some political ideology that isn't kingdom do you see your argument as an attempt to pull us to something more transcendent um, in the moment of tension? Transcendent, more just uh, lovingly realistic. So like, you know, uh, most Christians tend to be center of, or right of center politically. And so for a Christian who is, you know, let's say much more conservative, to be able to say, I completely disagree with my progressive, you know, mayor's policies toward the homeless, but I do agree with the motivation this person has to help the homeless, you know, and, and I, you know, if I'm able to say that to myself, then I am, I can't hate my mayor. Um, I, I'm, I'm now lovingly posturing myself toward this person that might totally disagree with me and be implementing policies that are not going to net out for the, for the good. But when we, when we look at each other as monsters and are able to, you know, in this kind of binary way, say, okay, what I want, I want because I actually want to help the poor. And what this person wants, they say they want to help the poor, but actually they're just evil. It is very, well, you can't love evil. <laughs> no one can. Um, and so if you've consigned your political opponent to total evil, then you've made something inhuman out of them, right? And, uh, and that's where we are today. We, we've come, because, I mean, the, the lack of Christian virtue in our society, I mean, since really the sexual revolution has been draining like water out of a bathtub. So we shouldn't act all that surprised that we don't have very virtuous politics. Us and them. Mm -hmm. How is Jesus's invitation to sinners, Adam, completely inclusive and totally exclusive? Yeah, this is a, this is a fun chapter to, to write because on the one hand, Jesus is terribly exclusive, right? He is a Jewish Messiah. He came to the Jewish people. In fact, one of the, <laughs> a couple of the Gospels record uh, him talking to uh, a Samaritan woman and referring to her as a dog. I mean, that's not, that's not nice, right? Um, and, and he offers one way and no other way. And his, you know, again, you read the Sermon on the Mount and it is, I mean, it skewers us all. Uh, it's, it's incredibly, incredibly difficult uh, to hear. And all that feels like I could never be a part of that. And yet at the same time, he's the most inclusive because he's recognizing that none of us are capable of meeting the exclusive demands. And so he reaches over that fence, that wall, and you know, lives in a human body in solidarity with us, dies in our place, um, and then rises so that those high walls that none of us could actually traverse could have a door and that we might actually be able to, to enter in and not enter in on the basis of our ethnicity or on the basis of our socioeconomic background or on the basis of anything other than trust that Jesus actually did that. So, that's a that is a real tension because when you're in that when you're in the kingdom of God when you're a Christian, there are certain behaviors that you simply cannot engage in, right? Because we're trying to obey Christ, and in the name of inclusivity, we can't call something holy that is unholy. But at the same time, when you're in the kingdom, you can't shut the doors 
and totally remove yourself from, you know, that which is unholy. Uh, because if you do, you forget the mission, which is to, to beckon people to come into the door. Um, and so living in that tension of, all right, as a Christian, I have to, my lifestyle is going to look uh, exclusive to some. And I got to be not just okay with that. I, I have to like pursue a lifestyle that is different and noticeably different than those around me. Um, and I have to care about them, even though I find that their behaviors, um, you know, in many ways abhorrent. You're listening to Dr. Adam Mabry. He's the author of the book, Stop Taking Sides. He not only has given it a provocative title, but he's living in the provocative conversation of it with the understanding that there are silos that people live in, and yet a call, a beckoning, as it were, to engage in this point of tension as a believer in Jesus Christ. Are you feeling a little bit of tension? Why aren't you feeling more? Maybe a question that he asks. And if you're feeling too much tension, how do you work it through? How do you process some of what may feel like a a kind of quagmire of, of life and reason as you study the scriptures and live in the world today? Stop Taking Sides by Adam Mabry. You can find out more about him at adammabry.org. We will come back and talk a bit more in the final segment and also have a time of prayer. How does the Holy Spirit help us to hold that tension? What does the scriptures teach about victory and suffering together? Well, touch on these things and maybe a little bit more, but certainly a time of prayer for you, dear friend. Adam Mabry, adammabry.org. Stay with us. We'll be back with more. Wandering the road of desperate life Namelessly beneath the barren sky James 3.13 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. The Good Life with Dr. Danny is brought to you by generous sponsors. Thank you to Coach Dino Babers and Mrs. Susan Babers, Mr. Edmund Jung and Mrs. May Jung, Mr. Rodney Arias Sr., A1A Electrician, Cedar Assembly of God, and the Thursday Men's Breakfast, Boston. If you, your business, or your church would like to support The Good Life with Dr. Danny, please visit drdanny.live. Join our partnership team. That's drdanny.live. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Life with Dr. Danny a program of Danny Yamashiro Ministries and Formation Institute. Divisions of Jesus Christ is calling you. Now let's join Dr. Danny and experience the good life today. He's in demand worldwide as a teacher and preacher. Dr. Adam Mabry is also a professor of theology and biblical studies at Every Nation Seminary. He's the author of the book, Stop Taking Sides. Adam, how does the Holy Spirit help us to hold that tension that you speak so much about in your book, 
stop taking sides? Yeah, great question. Um, so it, at the end of the day, any pursuit of virtue is a pursuit to be like Christ, right? So he was the most faithful. He was the most patient. He was the most kind. He was the most loving. And so uh, he's teaching us his way, and we want to follow in his way, but doing that is completely impossible without the transforming power and and uh, regular presence of God the Holy Spirit. And what's encouraging about that is that is also how Jesus lived. Uh, Jesus did not live uh, on the earth out of the power of, of um, how do you say, the merely being the second person of the Trinity. The, the Bible, particularly the Gospel of Luke, is replete with, uh, with descriptions of Jesus' relationship to the Holy Spirit and him being filled with the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit to do certain things and to be a certain way. So my answer to that would be, if, if in his incarnation, Jesus had a regular relationship and even in his human nature, a dependency upon the Holy Spirit, oh my gosh, how much more... <laughs> Are we, are we in need of that? And I think that's probably why Jesus, you know, when he said, hey, uh, you're going to be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, but don't go anywhere until you've received power from on high because he realized, yeah, you won't be able to, like you'll fail before you even begin unless the Holy Spirit comes and fills you. So God the Holy Spirit is um, completely necessary for any pursuit of a, of a godly life. A personal drill down. Okay. Are you motivated? Were you motivated by some deep conciliatory yearning as uh, the drive to write this book? Um, in my natural self, I am quite a fighter. And uh, me 10 years ago could have never written a book like this. Um, but I am motivated to keep my people's eyes on Christ and unnecessary and sub-Christian debates are simply counterproductive to discipleship. And so when uh, this all became you know, really clear in 2015, um, right, because that's when uh, Donald Trump entered the uh, candidacy for presidency and then, of course, won, and seeing how, seeing how this one human being uh, and debates about this one human being so preoccupied so many of my people. Meanwhile, they were not thinking about their neighbors who don't know Christ, their you know, kids who need their attention, their professors, they're not thinking about any of that. And so my desire in writing this book was that my people would become virtuous even in the midst of a constantly um, polarized world. And so it wasn't so much a motivation to be concili- conciliatory as to help disciple my people who are so, and me, we are so easily distracted by sub-Christian d- debates of our day. You're, you mentioned early on about something humorous, that God had a sense of humor in sending you. Yes. Yes, he's hilarious. From a personal standpoint. <laughs> yeah. uh, how yeah. did, how did, my flesh is just not like this. My, I mean, in my, in my natural man, I am a fighter. I am super opinionated. And anyone who would listen to this who knows me really well, you know, understands the complete irony of me even writing a book like this. Uh, uh, most of all, probably my, my wife. Um, but it seems to be God's will to put me in a place that requires me to grow in holiness and then to write books about ways I was unholy and then he helped me. <laughs> and so in, in the hope that someone who is as unholy as me could also be helped. Let's take a turn on paradox and mystery. 
How do victory and suffering go together? 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's talking about, you know, the resurrection. And he's given like 14 chapters of moral injunctions to, you know, to the Corinthians. And so it's all culminating in his in this theology of the resurrection. And in his in in his explanation uh, of the necessary feature of the resurrection to the Christian life, he summarizes it by saying, you know, death is swallowed up in victory. I find that sentence fascinating because that means that victory doesn't just overcome death or or displace death, it metabolizes death. It consumes it. So, so therefore, so complete is the victory at the end that even my worst suffering and my stupidest turns and the, all of the ways death breaks into my life, be it mental or physical or whatever, if I trust in a resurrected Jesus, eventually the worst parts of my life will be fuel on the fire of a victory that I can't yet see. And if I can trust that, then I can walk through the suffering that will be, I mean, here's a promise of Jesus that no one ever puts on a coffee cup. In this life, you will suffer, right? Um, So that's just going to be a feature of life. And if I can approach that suffering, not as if it were meaningless and not as if it were, you know, always from uh, the devil and to be rebuked, but if I can just keep my eyes on a, a promise of resurrection, then my worst suffering ends up being metabolized by a much greater victory. Suffering metabolized by a much greater victory. I think this is, as you say those words and explain it, this is a good time to pray. Someone today is suffering. Mm-hmm. Suffering is someone is yearning for victory. Mm-hmm. Someone is victorious mm-hmm. and is forgetting about suffering. <laughs> Adam Mabry, a word of encouragement to someone on the spectrum of those place positions in life at this moment. Encouragement and a time of prayer. Sure. Please. Well, if you're walking through a season of suffering, um, I would encourage you to, in your suffering, remember the victory. Remember that it won't always be this way, even if it has always been this way. If you are walking in a season of victory, I hope you're encouraging those who are suffering. And I, I want you to, in your victory, remember suffering. Not because I don't want you to enjoy your victory, but you can't enjoy victory unless you see it in contrast sometimes to the suffering that perhaps you or others have walked through. Um, and, in, and in either one of those positions, because they are oriented toward an, a victory that isn't yet, like any victory we're walking in now is just a foretaste. It's an appetizer. It's not the real thing. Um, all of this has to be oriented and, and looking toward that eventual day when the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. So if we keep our eyes on that, then we can do just about anything God calls us to do. And so that's, that's what I'd like to, to pray over those who are listening. Father, I thank you for the times of victory. They are great. <laughs> and I pray that everyone in the sound of my voice has far many more of those than those times of suffering. And God, for those who are walking through a death or a depression or um, 
a, a distance relationally or, or something that just is bad. And there's really no way to spin it other than it, it just is bad. Lord, that they'd be able to say, this is in fact really, really bad. And you will make this different one day. And in, in that, Lord, may they find hope and endurance to walk through things that are very, very hard. For the glory of Jesus. Amen. 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 Adam, thank you for, for praying. Thank you for addressing these, these points of tension. A parting shot. You write at the end of your book, calmly proceed. Where's the wisdom in that? In the word calmly. <laughs> um, very little of long-term good in my life has been produced by very emotional reactions to things. Um, very instantaneous emotional reactions to things are, are not great strategies for virtue and great strategies for changing the world or reaching your neighbor or whatever. So if I found myself driven by an emotion, particularly like anxiety, um, then I'm experiencing what faith doesn't feel like. Because if we are in faith, then we're trusting. And faith is the answer to anxiety. And faith is the way for Christians in a crazy world where things are going wrong. And increasingly, we are you know, public enemy number one. Uh, if we trust him, that's how we can have peace to proceed. Calmly, calmly proceed. Adam, thank you. Thank you. Wisdom from Adam Mabry, adammabry.org. My friend, God's timing is perfect, and there's no better time than right now, I believe, to share the love of Jesus Christ. And if you haven't done so, look, this may be that perfect moment for you to open your heart to Jesus. Go to drdanny.live for next steps. Find resources to reach family and friends. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, major platforms. John 17, 20, Jesus said, I ask that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so the world may believe that you sent me. It's always a blessing to be with you. Thank you to Adam Mabry, adammabry.org. Until next time, along with my producer, David Nasora, creative director, Brian Torres, social media director, Luke Yamashiro, and guest coordinator, Jan Yi. I'm Danny Yamashiro. Remember, the Lord is with you as you share the love of Jesus with someone someone today. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast of The Good Life with Dr. Danny. We hope that today's program has been a blessing for you and that you may find hope in hearing how God's Word affects people from all walks of life. The Good Life with Dr. Danny is a listener-supported program, and we'd like for you to prayerfully consider becoming a sponsor or donor. To contact Dr. Danny and learn more about the ministry, visit drdanny.live. That's drdanny.live. Be sure to tune in weekdays at 6 p.m. to hear The Good Life with Dr. Danny. Until next time, may God richly bless you with The Good Life.